Um, hi, this is Natalie and Whitney, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on the Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. Today, we're continuing our quick hit series designed to review high yield topics for our yearly in-service examination. Today, we're going to be discussing pressure sores. So uh, for pressure sores, let's start with just the definition. Um, it's really localized soft tissue injury result, resulting from unrelieved pressure, normally over a bony prominence, uh, just because pressure is generally increased there. So the pathophysiology here is that when compression of the soft tissue exceeds the pressure coming through your capillary blood vessels, it leads to ischemia. And if that's not relieved, it can progress to necrosis and ulceration. And that's even in well-vascularized areas. Factors that directly contribute to pressure sore formation include decreased mobility, decreased sensation, friction, and moisture. And then other factors that kind of indirectly contribute to the pressure sore formation are poor nutritional status, diabetes, um, and age. So typically we stage ulcers from uh, one to four. Stage one is when uh, the injury is well circumscribed, but non-blanching and erythematous. Stage two progresses to partial thickness skin loss. Stage three is full thickness skin loss involving subcutaneous tissue down to even muscle and fascia. Stage four is through the muscle to the bone with undermining or sinus tracts possible. Um, if you have a suspected deep tissue injury, it might be uh, like a maroon color to intact skin with likely underlying deep tissue injury. And then if an ulcer is unstageable, it's usually full thickness uh, with an eschar at the base. So it's kind of hard to tell what is exposed there. When we treat ulcer ulcers, we kind of do this by the stage that they're in. So stage one or two is non-surgical management. We try to increase protective barriers and maintain kind of a moist wound environment, ideal for healing. And then stage three and four sometimes require debridement. Uh, we also will incorporate dressings to encourage healing. And then reconstructive surgery also, uh, obviously is our last level on our treatment ladder. Thanks, Natalie. Um, so as she said, reconstruction is really our last, uh, last rung of the treatment ladder for patients with pressure sores. And when we think about reconstruction in this population, we do have to recognize that given the high risk of recurrence of pressure sores following reconstruction, we need to optimize patients prior to surgery and design flaps that have the possibility of future readvancement knowing that a good amount of these patients, up to 30 to 40% of these patients will have a recurrence of the same site. First thing we need to do is think about their, before we bring them to the operating room, is think about their preoperative optimization in order to um, give the patients the best chance at having a successful surgery. So things that we think about are nutrition, number one. Um, the recommendations from several studies are that patients should have a serum albumin greater than 2.0 prior to surgery should have a protein intake between 1.5 and three grams per kilogram per day, and should have about 25 to 35 uh, calories per kilogram of weight of non-protein um, in their diet. The next thing that we have to think about is infection. So there are two types of infections that these patients can present with. 
Uh, the first is a soft tissue infection. These are common among wounds and we recommend debridement of all non-viable tissue uh, prior to coverage. That can either be at a bedside debridement if the patient does not have sensation in the area of the decubitus ulcer or can be in the operating room. Um, this is especially helpful for sensate patients. The second type of infection that we need to talk about is osteomyelitis. Uh, this is a defined as an infection of the underlying bones, the underlying ischium or sacrum most commonly. Uh, notably on tests, bone biopsy is the gold standard for uh, diagnosing osteomyelitis. However, imaging can also be used and a gadolinium MRI is the best imaging study to use in this case. The treatment for osteomyelitis is both antibiotics and surgical. Generally, patients that have acute osteomyelitis or an acute infection are treated with six weeks of antibiotics prior to flap coverage and then about three weeks after. However, we generally um, consult infectious disease uh, for management of these antibiotics because there are such long-term antibiotics that we're giving patients. The next thing that we have to think about is relief of pressure. So obviously the patient's got these uh, pressure sores because of pressure on bony prominences. So therefore we need to come up with strategies preoperatively for relieving pressure in the post-operative setting. So that means um, making sure that we have air fluid mattresses, wheelchairs with pressure relief padding. And after surgery, we need to make sure that the patient has the ability to relieve pressure or be turned at least every two hours to really pressure over the site of the um, reconstruction. And frankly, most commonly um, I've seen clinically, we like patients to be completely non-weight bearing on their operative site for several days, two weeks after their surgery. Um, so that oftentimes requires hospitalization if they don't have good outpatient care. The next thing we do have to think about in these patients are spasms and contractures. These are both common in patients with spinal cord injuries and can contribute to the formation of pressure sores because patients end up in uh, contracted positions um, and then therefore putting pressure, especially on their greater trochanter. The treatment of um, spasms is generally medical. So you start with uh, medications such as baclofen, diazepam, and dantrolene. And the treatment of contractures, you start with physical therapy. Uh, finally, we have to discuss or almost finally, we have discussed the use uh, of diabetes in uh, patients with uh, pressure sores. In general, we recommend that patients have an A1C less than six prior to flap coverage. Uh, that's based on data showing that patients that have an A1C greater than six have a high risk for flap failure. Finally, um, we do need to discuss with patients uh, fecal and urinary diversion if it's needed. Um, sometimes patients who are spinal cord injury patients who have large sacral decubitus ulcers do get chronic infections in the area due to urinary or fecal soilage. Um, and therefore a diversion in these patients may be beneficial at preventing uh, future infections or future recurrence. Finally, we now need to think about now once we've got the patient fully prepped and ready to go for the operating room. And in general, that takes the longest period of time. Um, and we now finally have inherited them as plastic surgeons. We get to talk about the common flaps that are used for pressure sore reconstruction. And generally we think of these um, in terms of the site of the pressure sore. So they're typical flaps that we think of for typical pressure sore sites. So trochanteric pressure sores, we generally think of a TFL, which can be um, either a VI advancement TFL flap or a typical or um, like standard or uh, commonly described rotational flap. In the sacral region, we generally think of a lumbrosacral uh, advancement flap, which is a fascia cutaneous flap. In the gluteal ischial region, um, we oftentimes think of VI advancement flaps. Um, and in and those include the posterior thigh flap, 
Uh, the pedicle for the posterior thigh flap is the inferior gluteal artery, and it's designed as a fascia cutaneous uh, flap that can be advanced in a VI fashion. Notably, most flaps in ambulatory patients that we use are fascia cutaneous flaps. However, if the patient is non-ambulatory, muscle can also be used for reconstruction. This muscle typically does provide better coverage and a more reliable blood supply, therefore is best used for patients that have deep pressure sores or have underlying infections because you're bringing a better blood supply to the area and therefore you're more able to deal with the underlying infection. However, in ambulatory patients, obviously you are trading off some functional disability um, and therefore muscle flaps are less likely to be used in the ambulatory setting. Amazing. Um, all right, next we'll just conclude with a couple of miscellaneous points here and, uh, they involve treatment of patients with with paraplegia. Um, first is autonomic dysreflexia and the signs of this are headache, hypertension, bradycardia, flushing, sweating, um, and that's due to uncontrolled sympathetic response to stimulus, um, usually with paraplegia above T6. So the stimuli can generally include bladder distension, rectal distension, musculoskeletal injury, uh, and pregnancy, uh, just something to consider when working with these patients. And then considerations for anesthetic use, um, administration of succinylcholine in patients with paraplegia may cause hyperkalemia, uh, which is up because of the upregulated receptors in, in damaged muscles. So signs of hyperkalemia generally include peak T waves, early and then late cardiac arrhythmias. So to treat, we always learned in medical school, give uh, calcium carbonate, stabilize the cardiac membranes. Yay, so stable. And then um, you can give other things like bicarb, glucose, and insulin. And that kind of drives K into the cells to, to bring it back down. So with that, I think that was pressure sores in 10 minutes or less. So hopefully you're not feeling pressure except for from the in-pending or in-service. So we're almost done with our quick hit series. Thanks for tuning in this time, and we'll catch you for the next one. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.